0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of Grace to Live with Pastor Keith Crosby, lead pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us here on the broadcast today, studying God's Word. And we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, we'll be continuing with our Decoding Jesus teaching series. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us again to the Gospel of John, Chapter 1. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study. If today is your first time, we've begun a series on the Gospel of John. And it comes on the heel of our uh, Easter service where we talked about the historical Jesus and we examined the Bible as, a, as an original and reliable uh, historical source document uh, that enables us to understand the resurrection and the empty tomb. And we invited our visitors back and, of course, all of our members and attenders back. Now that we've understood the tomb is empty and the empty tomb and that Jesus rose, what we want to do today is to begin or to continue to decode Jesus, to understand it so that we can embrace the historical Jesus. And to do that, we want to look into the Gospel of John because the only historical record of Jesus, who he was and what he taught and what he believes are in the Gospels. And we've selected the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John is the last Gospel written. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They are summaries of the life and times of Jesus Christ during his earthly public ministry. The Gospel of John rounds them out. It was the last Gospel written. It was written around 90 A.D. by one of his closest associates, John the Beloved, the Gospel Whom Jesus Loved. And it is a very different gospel. It rounds out, it complements, it, it fills in what the other gospels didn't cover, and at the same time it gives us a unique perspective on Jesus, whereas the other three are mostly almost biographical, and this one is too, but the gospel of John is theological, it is philosophical, it, is, uh, it gives you insight into how Jesus thought, what he thought about himself and what he said about himself. In fact... In the Gospel of John, almost 50% of the words are Jesus' words. And you gain great insight into his thinking because you see him interacting with one or two people or five or ten, but you see these dialogues, sometimes monologues, you even see him interacting with a group as large as 5,000 and all that came out of that as well. And so you gain a unique insight into Jesus. You know, last week we talked about the Rosetta Stone, how it was used to... uh, reverse engineer hieroglyphics. So just to remind you, if you weren't here, the Rosetta Stone was a, a carving with three sets of inscriptions on it. And on the far left was Egyptian hieroglyphics. In the middle was a language called Demotic. And at the end of it, on the far right, was a language called Old Test- uh excuse me, ancient Greek. And what they did is they took the ancient Greek and they used it to decode the hieroglyphics. So that we could understand all those carvings and the uh, pyramids and such. Well, the Gospel of John is unique because it gives us additional insight into the thinking and personality of Jesus Christ, and we're going to use it to decode him today. Now, as we talked about last week, the Gospel of John began with 18 verses that some people call the prologue. You could think of that as a spiritual table of contents. You could think of it, if, if you were a business person, as an executive summary of the of everything that is to follow in the Gospel of John. You could also think of it, as, uh, if you're a student, as uh, cliff notes or sparks notes, which sort of uh, summarize everything that's coming. And what the, what the prologue does is it gives us a heads up on every theme and every key concept that is going to follow in John's Gospel. And what we saw last week uh, in John 1.18... Was Jesus as the ultimate decoder or explainer of who God is? We saw that in John 1:18. He, the only begotten God, the only God from the side of the Father, He has explained him. And then we moved back and understood that this explanation uh, is mercy, because it's special revelation and insight into God, and we saw that Jesus is the ultimate mercy giver in John 116 from his fullness we have received grace upon grace or mercy upon mercy. And as the mercy giver, we also saw him as the ultimate soul surgeon. In John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus healed our relationship with God. By embracing Jesus, we are restored to God. We are restored to, phys- to spiritual health. And then in John 1, 4, we saw Jesus as the life giver. Why can he be the soul surgeon? Why can he be the mercy Giver, why can he be the decoder? Because he ultimately is the source of all life. In John 1 4 we saw in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that began we began to consider how can all these things be? And that brought us to John 1 3, that he was the Creator. John 1 3 says there's nothing made that he didn't make. All things were made through him, which led us to the ultimate conclusion as we sort of reversed our way through that those first eighteen verses that Jesus Is the ultimate life giver, ultimate mercy giver, ultimate soul surgeon, ultimate explainer of God, was God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so those were the key themes that we were warned of or encouraged to look for as we move through the rest of John's gospel. And today we pick up in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 34, and it's, it's about bearing witness. And as, you, as we know, also last week we talked a little bit about John the Baptist, that there was a man whose name was John who bore witness to the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. And as Christians, we're expected to bear witness to Jesus. That's why they call us Christians, right? Christ followers, little Christs. And bearing witness in this, in this age is as difficult as it was in John's time. And it's almost an impossible task sometimes. And sometimes, in bearing witness, we, we get wound up or we get carried away or we, and we call attention to ourselves or we say things that distract and detract attention away from Jesus and onto us. And in this passage that we're going to study today, that we're going to sort of survey, what we see in John the Baptist, who was the final and last Old Testament prophet, is that while all this attention is focused on him... He moves all that attention onto Christ. He will not let anyone or anything distract people away from Christ. He came to bear witness to Christ. He knew that he was not Christ. And so what we have here in our passage, what you're to watch for, is what John says about Christ, these themes in the prologue, because this passage is about Jesus, not about you and me, but we can apply it. But we also learn from John lessons... In regard to bearing witness. So let me walk us through the passage. We'll start in John chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God. He was on a mission from God whose name was John. What do we know about John? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was trying to point people to Jesus. He was trying to show them the way to eternal life. He was not the light but came to bear witness to the light. There's sort of an encouragement and a warning. Sometimes, like I said, we get wound up and we get in kind of a push-pull scenario with people, and we, we start thinking that it's about us and not about Jesus. And John was, knew that he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Now we pick up in verse 19, and let me set this up for you. This is after Jesus' baptism. This is after Jesus has gone into the wilderness, and Jesus is going to come onto the scene here shortly. But John has been baptizing. He's caused quite a stir because he's dressed in a manner that reminds people of Elijah and the prophets of old. This is taking place at a time when Israel is at an all-time spiritual, and if you want to say physical, or national low. There had been no word from God for 400 years. 400 years of prophetic silence. They were under Roman domination, much like they had been under domination by the Egyptians. And they they were hoping that a deliverer would come. Moses had said there would be another prophet among you like me who you were to listen to, and they were hoping for rescue. They were hoping for a Messiah. They were waiting. And then John the Baptist shows up. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? A lot of people would then start talking all about themselves, but watch what John says. Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. You see that word confessed twice there. I am not the Christ. Now in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it said that people were anticipating and they were just waiting to hear him say, I'm it. But he says, I am not the Christ. He makes it very clear. And that confessed showing up twice there just shows his emphasis on calling attention away from himself. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. They said, are you the prophet? And he said, no, I get a kick out of this. Because if you watch his sentences, they get shorter and shorter. They're talk- he will not talk about himself. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? Don't we love to talk about ourselves? Not John. Not John. John is going to give as little information about himself as he can. I can think of about 10 stories from the hotel business that would come into play here, but I'm going to leave you in the dark, okay? (laughs) All right, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, this is huge, because John is on a mission from God. There's no question about it. He is God's mouthpiece. He is a prophet. And even here, he sort of claims a prophetic mantle. Because he says, I am the voice of one crying, make way the strait of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Here's where they miss it. And when you think about the prologue, he was in the world, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. You're going to see this play out here. This is why the prologue is the executive summary. He just told them that the Messiah is coming. He just told them, and they knew from Isaiah's prophecy the Messiah is God. And in Malachi, the last prophetic voice they would have heard, it says, you know, make straight the way of the Lord. The Lord's glory will be revealed to you. These prophecies indicate that God is coming in person. He's going to come to his people. He's going to come to his uh, temple. Look at Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is why they thought he was Elijah, okay? Okay. But what's going on, this, this is not the great and terrible day of the Lord. That will come in Revelation, all right? He will turn the hearts of, his, their, of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they're a little, they, sh- they should be more than a little nervous. But watch what they do here. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's a parenthetical statement. It's like an aside. It's like the narrator's going, and they came from the Pharisees. Why is that? Because the people who ran the temple... Did not believe. If, if you had to draw a par- parallel today, you know, you have the old mainline denominations and you have the angry hyper-fundamentalists, you know. Oh, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees who controlled the temple were like the mainline denominations. They weren't really much into the Bible, but they had the outer trappings of religiosity. The Pharisees were like the angry fundamentalists and they wanted to know who this guy was because they wanted to make sure he was going to toe the line with what they wanted, okay. They asked him verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? That would seem like a legitimate question, but it really isn't. One is they've confused the prophet and the Messiah, the Christ. Those are one and the same. Two, uh, Elijah was supposed to come back before the end of the world, and basically they've just got these little simplified cups and, and traditions that they've made up, and so whoever is going to baptize like this needs to be one of these three, or really one of these two. And let me just walk you through a little bit of the controversy about the baptism here. Jews were never baptized, and John the Baptist is baptizing Jews. Baptism, as it talks about here, is not really mentioned in the Old Testament. It was what they call an intertestamental practice between the close of the Old Testament In the beginning of the New Testament, there was something called the intertestamental period. And during that time, it became a tradition that if somebody converted to Judaism, you baptized them. You dunked them three times to wash away their past. John is using that to say to the Jews that you're no better off than the rest of the world. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know this from the other gospels. And so these Jews submitting to baptism was a huge deal. And so these Pharisees sent these people out to find out who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Is he Elijah? Just what? So now they're mad. They're mad because they're saying, who on earth gave you the right to do this? Now here's the funny thing about that. Nobody's talking about the Messiah. He just said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. They've just like pushed that aside. And you see that theme coming through from the prologue, the spiritual table of contents. Nobody's saying, well, where is he? Is he, is he here? Is he close by? And so they're just, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And John, with incredible humility and more than little patience, answers their question in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany near across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. So he says, he doesn't even get into a debate with them. You know, there are people who, they, they ask you a question, but they really don't want an answer. And you know that if you try to answer them, if you try to debate with them, you're just wasting your time. There's no need to try to explain yourself to people who are intent on misunderstanding you. So John just says, look, I, I'm baptizing with water, but the one who comes after me, he is a whole different animal than I am. He's the main issue, and he is going to baptize you. Uh, excuse me, here he points out that he says that, and this one, I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandal. Now in Jewish culture, the lowliest of lowly servants was the guy who when all the people came to your house with their dirty, stinking feet because they wore sandals in those days and walked through the town, somebody had to wash those feet and it wasn't gonna be the head of the household, it wasn't gonna be anybody of any rank, of any, of any prestige and John is saying, the one who's coming after me is the main issue. Me, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. And then you have this curious verse here in 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. There's two Bethanys, one near Jerusalem, one near the Jordan. What you're telling, what, what you can see here from that last verse is that, is that whoever's writing this is an eyewitness and he knows the territory really well. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "So now 24 hours have passed, give or take." Jesus comes walking in from the temptation. He's already been baptized. He's been out for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And he comes walking up, and John the Baptist says this Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. So John points. I mean, you can probably just see the crowd. You know, turn and look. He goes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what you see there is this. The Lamb of God, they they think of sacrifice. They know they had a Jewish sacrificial system. If you trusted in God, you knew that you needed to repent of your sin and an outward sign of your repentance and an outward sign of your faith in God was the willingness to sacrifice animals to sort of atone for your sin, to cover your debt. And that act really separated the real believers from the non-believers because it was costly to sacrifice livestock. And the lamb, there was a lamb sacrificed at Passover for the sins of the nation that came right at the Day of Atonement. And what he's saying is, here he is. Now, there had been some sense in Isaiah and other books of prophecy that the Messiah would suffer. The Jews had lost sight of that. But he's using all of this language to point them to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This would be no normal person. This would be no normal person. And then he says in verse 30, he identifies him as the one he was talking about the previous day. This is, whom, him of who, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now here's what's peculiar about that. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin and he's six months older. And the and the, and the, word, the wording there says, he was before me, he was above me. But then the way he uses it in the next phrase means he existed before me. And, and doesn't John's prologue start in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what, what he's doing is he's giving away the fact that this is no normal person. And you know that if you knew John, that John would understand that Jesus was six months younger than he was. But he's saying he's, he's older than he was. Because John understands that, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Savior. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He knows who this is. And he's doing everything he can to point these people toward that. And he goes on. And again, he goes on humbling himself. Verse 31. I myself did not know him. Some translations say recognize him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John's saying, look, I was clueless, I had no idea who this was. I mean, think about it, I mean, John probably in his early years grew up with Jesus. And he goes, I didn't recognize him. But the one who sent me wanted me to call attention to him. And I didn't know who he was. But the one who sent me to baptize, and God sent John to baptize, said, watch. The one on whom you see the Spirit descend in the manner of a dove, light on him and stay on him. This is the one. So John is like, I didn't know until God revealed it to me. And this is the Lamb of God. And then look what he says in verse 34. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, what we have here is an indication of who Jesus is. And Jesus is the Son of God. God the Son. John is bearing witness to this. And he's made it very clear to everybody around him that it's not about him. It's about Jesus. It's about the Messiah. That, the one, that he is the forerunner, he is the messenger, the herald for the one who's coming. And he uses the Isaiah uh, passage and uses the Malachi passage. And he makes it clear, and let me give you a little extra background here for no extra charge. In those days, when a king came, a retinue went out before him and they made the roads smooth. They made the crooked roads straight. They took the bend out of the roads. They made a highway from point A to point B, the shortest distance between two lines between two points is a straight line. They cut the mountains down. They built the hills up. They built the valleys up so it would be a smooth road. And John is saying, I am that road builder. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And he's saying, and this is him. And people are like, well, tell us about yourself. Who? Get, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about the Messiah. It's about the one who was promised. It's about the one who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's about the one who's going to seek and save that which was lost. It is about the promised one whom God promised long ago through our fathers. This is him. Forget about me.